Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. There's Charles W. Chuck Bryant. There's Jerry over there. And this is the Dr. Soyce cast. Our final episode of this year. 2018. So long. In the books. Dr. Mm-hmm. Soyce. Dr. Soyce, that's right. You know what's funny? Well, we'll get to that. All right. Everything that's funny can wait. Yep. We're going to talk serious. Dr. Seuss was an author of children's books. He was so great. And also kind of racist. Chuck, there's a lot of stuff in here I wish I didn't know. <laughs> I know. I think we're about to ruin Dr. Seuss at the end of the year. Right. Right after the holidays. Right. Uh, yeah. But, well, let's just talk about the man. Okay. So, um, we are talking, we keep saying Dr. Soyce. Everybody knows him as Dr. Seuss, but apparently the correct pronunciation is Soyce. Yeah. And, and the guy would know because Soyce is actually his middle name. His yeah. name is Theodore Soyce Geisel or Geisel. Is it Geisel or Geisel? It would be Geisel. In, okay. ger- in German, you go with the second vowel. So, Theodore Soyce Geisel. Yeah, and uh, it's sort of when I saw that, everyone basically was like Seuss until he eventually was like, fine, like I can't fight this fight any longer. (laughs) Well, they're like, well, spell it differently then. (laughs) Uh, But that reminded me of Joe Thiesman. Oh, yeah. The very famous story of quarterback Joe Thiesman who changed his spelling or his Mm -hmm. pronunciation to Thiesman to rhyme with Heisman. Right. Which I think is the story. I think that's true. No. No, I think that's true. Oh, really? Yeah. Did, what do you think? That was just like an old football tale? No, I'd never heard it. I thought you were just being funny. Oh, no. I, that that really happened. And that really came back to bite him in the rump when his thigh bone broke open. <laughs> God. He's like, I guess my knee would have busted if he had just kept at Thiesman. Oh. Is that not okay? <laughs> Too I soon? I don't know. <laughs> so, we're, obviously, once we get into Joe Thiesman leg-breaking talk, we're talking about Dr. Seuss. That's right. Like I said, Theodore Soyce Geisel, um, who is, I can't really think of a children's book author that is more widely known. Maybe Charles Schultz. Maybe. I think of him kind more of, as like the right comic there. strip guy. Oh, children's well, book. sure, sure. Children's book. Yeah. Like Judy Bloom, sure, but I don't know if I'd call her a children's book. Young adult tween. Yeah, that was YA. Like children's book. I guess the Berenstain Bears, not the Berenstain Bears. Yeah, I, I would say that oh, Teddy Geisel uh-huh. holds that distinction for sure. At the very least, his work, his drawing is just immediately recognizable, his style. Yeah, I mean, that font, we you we use that font for our live uh, Christmas show shirts. Ixnay on the copyright key. <laughs> no, it's not his. Oh, okay. In fact, I looked it up. I was kind of curious. I was like, what is that great font? that he uses for his book titles. And I don't know what he used. I, he probably just hand-drew it, sure. I imagine. Yeah. But um, now there are fonts called... Uh, Soyce? Dr. S-O-O-S font uh-huh. or Grinched uh, that you can, you know... Gotcha. You can gank that. Off. Sure. <laughs> like we did for our, our Christmas shirts. I haven't heard that word in forever. Gank? I think I was wearing like huge Jenkos the last time <laughs> I heard the word gank. You ganked my milk off my tray. <laughs> right. Yeah, I'm bringing I think it back. That was the last time I used it, too. <laughs> so, should we go back to the beginning? 
Yes, back to Springfield, Massachusetts in 1904. That's right. March 2, as a matter of fact. Fellow Pisces, uh, Dr. Soyce was born, uh, Teddy Geisel, and his grandpops had come from Germany in the mid-1800s, bought a brewery because they were good Germans. Yep. They, they knew all about beer. And originally, get this, the name of the brewery was Kambach and Geisel, and they locally called it Comeback and Guzzle. I love that. Isn't that awesome? In German, no yeah. less. Yeah. Whatever that would be. I think it'd be Kambach and Geisel. <laughs> uh, so he moved here, and it would end up becoming the Springfield Breweries Company, which his father then ran. Um, and this is really like we did he even did a show on Prohibition and it never really hit home to me some of the repercussions of that. I was just like, people can't drink. Right. But I never thought about a family business just being shut down. That was a good episode. It was. Uh, but that's what happened. That, you know, Prohibition came along. They had this successful brewery in their family. And that was it. And they were like, sorry, no, you're no longer in business. Go because find another job. these guys. Yeah. Yeah. Who were secretly drinking. <laughs> right. You know? So, um the the job that his his father did get was eventually became the supervisor of the town's parks. Yeah, kind of cool. And um, there's a a myth, an incorrect myth, from what I understand. One of the parks had a zoo in it, mm-hmm. and so a lot of people say that drawings of the animals were some of the first at the zoo were some of the first drawings that little Ted came up with. Not true. No, his father became superintendent of the parks when he was already a grown man. Oh, but did well, he— Well, not a grown man. He was definitely not a little kid at the zoo. Did he go to the zoo and draw animals, or is that all false? I think it may be all false, but I'm making that part up. I just, from what I read, he was grown enough that he wasn't a little boy drawing pictures of animals at the zoo, like people think. Interesting. Yeah. I wow. thought it was as well. I love busting myths. <laughs> I'm going to wear a beret you from should, now on. Yeah, you should do a show. Uh, so World War I comes along. Which I've been I've been doing a lot of World War One reading lately with the really anniversary of the armistice armistice yeah you got it uh, really interesting I didn't know much about it it's a pretty serious war oh, man brutal everything I know about it is from the Wonder Woman movie yeah <laughs> <laughs> I kid uh, so they were German uh, the the Geisels were like we said and so in the United States during World War One. There was a lot of anti – in fact, for a long time, actually, there was a lot of anti-German sentiment in the U.S. Right. They're like, we're not German. We just like beer a lot, right? Yeah. And our name is Geisel. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, so everyone – it was clear that they were German. And so, uh, it, you know, there was – there was. Uh, I get the feeling that he, you know, felt like he was, like, picked mm-hmm. on and laughed at and right. teased because he was German. Right. So if you can't beat him, join him. Turn that same kind of bigotry <laughs> on to others, we'll find. Right. So he starts at a very early age in high school um, drawing cartoons, uh, writing essays, uh, funny essays, satirical essays. And he started using a pen name very early on, uh, maybe because he was German. And he just uh, reversed his last name and he became Theo Lassig. <laughs> yeah, actually, one of my favorite books, um, Hooper Humperdinck, not him, mm-hmm. is written by Theo Lassig. Oh, really? Yeah. Interesting. So I that was, was his first. like, I always thought this was a Dr. Seuss book. And then I saw this and I'm like, it was a Dr. Seuss book. Wow. All Did right. you ever read that one? I don't think so. What's it called? Hooper Humperdinck. Not him. It's about this kid who's throwing a birthday party and everybody's invited to the greatest birthday party you've ever seen in your life. 
except for poor hum, Hooper Humperdinck. Mm. And I think he gets invited finally at the end. Were your parents like, mm, we should probably get Josh this and go ahead and get him ready? <laughs> right, pretty much. <laughs> there actually was a birthday party I wasn't invited to. And really? I was like, I'm Hooper Humperdinck. Oh, well, you know, my deal was I wasn't allowed <clears throat> to go to boy-girl parties mm-hmm. at, at, for a while. So, But you were still invited, right? Yeah, but that was even worse because I was invited and I was like, I had to say, no, I can't mm-hmm. go because there's girls there. Right, I got you. I mean, how humiliating is that? Especially in college. Yeah. And they were like, uh, what's wrong with girls? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> right. Ask my parents. <laughs> they seem great to me. They've they not s- told me. <laughs> they smell nice. <laughs> um, all right. So he reversed his name, became Lasig. Uh, went to Dartmouth College, and like many, many famous um, humorists, I guess you could call him. Yeah, for sure. He wrote for the his college humor magazine. It was called The Jack-O-Lantern. Obviously. And it was just like, really solidifies that college humor magazines really have produced some of the brightest comedic minds that in this country over yeah. the years, you know? Um, yeah. <laughs> Letterman, I think he worked at National Lampoon's, didn't he? I don't know if Letterman did. I mean, Conan certainly did, the Harvard Lampoon. I'm pretty sure um, uh, Letterman did as well. All right. At the very least, a lot of his writers did. Sure. Okay? Fine. Okay. (laughs) We'll we'll settle on that, that version of the truth. Okay. (laughs) Uh, But he got kicked off of the magazine staff when he was caught drinking on campus during Prohibition, which is kind of awesome. Yeah, I'll bet it wasn't for him. What do you mean? I'll bet he was like, well, I want to be on the magazine staff. This is terrible. This is an unjust law. Oh, yeah. Not awesome for him. Right. Yeah, yeah. I thought you meant he wasn't doing the drinking or something. Right. This did nothing to cut his career off, though. No, no, no. He just adopted a new pseudonym. Yeah, Soyce. Right. (laughs) S-E-U-S-S, again. But he pronounced it Soyce. Right. But he was the only person who did. Um, So he did graduate from Dartmouth in, I think, 1926, which also further goes to show that he was, so if he graduated college in 1926, his father's brewery wouldn't have been shut down until, I don't remember when Prohibition started, but he would, he was obviously not a young kid necessarily. Gotcha. Okay. Drawing dumb animals. At the zoo. At the zoo. (laughs) Um, But he... uh, he went on to Oxford to, I guess, pursue a higher degree. Yeah. Um, I think he was going to be a teacher was his original intent. Mm-hmm. And he didn't like Oxford, but Oxford brought him to his wife, uh, Helen Palmer. Yeah, his first wife. His first wife. And um, they met, and she actually had a really great influence on him by saying, uh, I think you are maybe going to be a better artist than a teacher and kind of pushed him toward that. Yeah. And he ended up pursuing a career in art uh, largely because of her influence. Yeah, and he sort of did the the student thing. Uh, he he worked on a novel and he traveled around Europe and was sort of uh, doing – and he was with Helen, of course, this whole time. Uh, they eventually get married. And then he went to work for a magazine called Judge, uh-huh. drawing once again like uh, political cartoons, humor cartoons. Acted, uh, this is where he added the doctor – to his name as sort of a joke because he, I guess, did not get that doctorate degree or whatever he was pursuing. No, he didn't. But later on in life, Dartmouth did bestow an honorary degree to make him an official doctor. When are we going to get one of those? I've been waiting a long time, Chuck. And are they as worthless as I think they are? Totally. <laughs> yeah. I mean, sure, you'll get like the discount at Wendy's that they offer, but that's that's really the only perk. But aside like, from saying you, like, I'm a doctor. Can you really call yourself that, though? Sure. 
Like only chumps do that, right? Like you have to call me doctor now. Dude, you you will see me telling people to call me Dr. Clark. <laughs> okay. I'll just I'll be more personable. I'll be Dr. Josh, like a chiropractor. I could see you going off and getting your PhD one day. Nah. 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 I I want the the honor. You want the honor. <laughs> From Bowling Green State University in Ohio. The, the backdoor version? Pretty much. Yeah. The I like free it. version. Um all right, so he got the doctor on the name, became Dr. Soyce. And from then on, he he never wrote under his given name again. He was always Dr. Soyce from that point forward. Right. Should we take a break? You can see me getting a PhD? Yeah. This late in my career? Yeah. This mid in my career? Sure. Huh. Am I like Natalie Portman or something? Yes. All right, let's take a break. Stuff you should know. All right, Natalie. <laughs> <laughs> Nat. Uh, I wish, right? I'll bet Natalie Portman hates being called Nat. You think? She seems like the type of Natalie who would hate being called Nat. She Let's said, find that's out. Dr. Portman. <laughs> Natalie Portman, will you please get in touch with us and let us know whether you're cool with being called Nat or not? Well, hey, since we're on that, uh, big shout out to Mr. Mark Ruffalo. It was basically the male Natalie Portman. Yeah, he he tweeted out our uh, Navajo Code Talkers episode, mm -hmm. which means that he's aware of this podcast, and we're huge fans. So if you're listening, man, thanks. Yeah, thanks a lot. That and means not, a lot. Not just aware, he liked it. He encouraged people to listen to yeah. it. He wasn't like steer clear of this piece of poop. Right. This is a good <laughs> podcast is what he was saying. Man, I, I remember when I saw You Can Count on Me for the first time. Oh, my God. That movie, that movie so wrecked me. It was such a good movie. Yeah. Not uh, just the first time. Like, just every time you watch that movie, it's yeah, wonderful. It's really great. So, uh, I have another show called Movie Crush, Mr. Ruffalo. <laughs> Would love to have you on. Hint. We'll just leave it there. Okay. <laughs> uh, all right. So, um, all right. Here's what happens. Okay. Teddy Geisel starts doing ads. Yeah. And does quite well. Yeah, I mean, if you're an ad illustrator, you're, you basically do what you're told. The client says, this is what we want. Mm -hmm. He was the kind of artist who, because of his distinctive style, his style is what the clients wanted. Right. So as an ad illustrator, he became nationally famous. Yeah, which is crazy to think of now. It really is. Yeah. His first big break was for something called Flit. It was a bug spray. And if you look at the Flit ads, they have a picture of the Flit. And it was that old-timey Tom and Jerry pump <laughs> cannon that's like, couldn't be more poisonous. Yeah, it puffs out like a cloud of noxious smoke. That formed like a skull and crossbones <laughs> yeah. in the air, basically, right? Um, that's what he was drawing stuff for. And he came up with a catchphrase because he wasn't just illustrating. He was also copywriting in these ads. And he came up with, quick, Henry, the Flit. And that just became a national catchphrase. Yeah, like, where's the beef? Right. Like, somebody's pestering you just, like, to somebody else, quick, Henry, the flit. Mm -hmm. That's how I probably would have used it. <laughs> but um, so he became known for that. And then a second ad campaign made him even bigger. Uh Oh, right. So he did flit for 17 years, dude. Right. Which is, like, I thought, yeah, sure, he did that for a couple of years. Right. I mean, there's almost two decades of doing those ads. Mm -hmm. Made a lot of money. Uh, kept him, you know— uh, nice and uh, employed through the through the Great Depression, and then this one's even weirder. Uh, he went to work for Standard Oil, who had Esso 
uh, oil and Esso gas. Right. And this was Esso Marine, which was their boat oil. Yeah. In 1934, he has this PR idea to create a a fake navy. The Seuss Navy. The Seuss Navy. Which is nothing. He just made <laughs> it up out of nowhere to promote the Esso Marine oil. Yeah, and it worked. Yeah, because he he basically drafted people into his navy. He would draw like famous figures, um, like say Eleanor Roosevelt or mm-hmm. something like that, dressed up in the suit, the Seuss Navy uniform or whatever, and it became a thing. Like people wanted to be in it, so they would apply to be in it. Isn't that and I weird? guess Esso would hold a, a party every year and just pull out all the stops, and there would be this lavish Seuss Seuss Navy party. You know, it's called what the Seuss Navy luncheon and frolic. <laughs> that sounds so like 30s. Uh, they had 2,000 admirals, and they included among them uh, Vincent Astor and Guy Lombardo, famous band leader. Mm-hmm. And as uh, this is a Grabster article, as Ed put it, they were what you would call like tastemakers today, like wealthy, influential Americans right. wanted to be in this fake Navy to go to this uh, luncheon and frolic. Right. And he wrote these little Navy story booklets, and it. Astonishingly, it was a big deal, and it actually worked. And when you look at them, they they look like Dr. Seuss books. Like, right? It's not like he changed his style. No, no, no. that is the thing. Like, he became famous for famous and sought after for his style. Yeah, exactly. And weirdly enough, he said that the the only reason he went into children's books initially was because his Standard Oil contract didn't forbid it. Huh? Like that was some of the work that he was allowed to do on oh, the side. Gotcha. He never. He was like, it's not like I had a. Great thing for kids. Well, he even said very famously multiple times um, that he didn't write for kids. He wrote for people. And he also famously said, you have kids, I'll entertain them. Right, yeah. He didn't want kids. Did not want kids. No. Uh, And he never had them. So his wish came true. (laughs) So um, he he was already pretty famous by the time World War II came around. Um, And he actually volunteered to become a soldier, but he was sent to Hollywood to work at what was called Fort Fox. Yeah, this is strange. I mean, I had heard of the Signal Corps. Mm-hmm. Um, well, the Signal Corps is everything from code, like code and code breakers. Oh, really? All the way to psychological operations. Oh, I thought the Signal Corps was just like the people that made documentaries and stuff. This was a division within the Signal Corps. Gotcha. And so he was basically in this this um this division with Frank Capra yeah. and some other like screenwriters, actors, like basically anybody who had anything to do with visual entertainment was put into this group in Hollywood on the Fox lot at what was called Fort Fox. And he, um, that's where he spent most of the war. Although there was a fascinating story about a time when he went to Europe because he had to go get approvals for a documentary he had worked on from all the high-ranking generals in Europe. So he went from headquarters to headquarters throughout Europe. And while he was in Luxembourg, he visited some of his friends. And he um, basically got the skinny, they think, on the ghost army, you know, the ghost army where they had inflatable tanks and yeah. like they, it was meant to make America's military look way bigger than it was. And these guys were running psychological operations. Well, Dr. Seuss was friends with some of the higher ups in the, the ghost army. And they think that they showed him on a map, like where to go to go see some of these. Mm-hmm. Well, in between the time he left and the time he got there, that was suddenly behind enemy lines. Yeah, the, the Battle of the Bulge literally 
started around him around him <laughs> while he was yeah and he's like i was just driving around thinking like it was just hard to find friendly troops yeah. like as part of combat belgium sure is pretty but he ended up inadvertently spending three days 10 miles behind enemy lines during the battle of the bulge and just barely made it out with his life yeah he was rescued by the brits um but he would eventually become a lieutenant colonel yeah uh in his short stint as a late 30 year old He's, I think, 38 when he first went in. Right. Uh, which is really kind of interesting piece of backstory. Well, he he was – we left out a pretty pretty big part of his formative years early on in his career was he wanted to become – he wanted to have a, a say in the direction America took in World War II. And he was very much in favor of going to war against the Nazis and Japan and Italy. Yeah. And um, one of the reasons why he was in favor was because he was extremely anti-fascist. He hated fascism. And he got a job at a liberal magazine, I think a newspaper actually, called PM, that was founded in New York. And it was founded with the eye to to basically call people out who were pushing other people around. Yeah. It's very liberal, very anti-fascist, very pro-World um, War II, although they didn't call it that at the time. And it was very anti-isolationist, too. And Dr. Seuss was drawing editorial cartoons, very political editorial cartoons, about seven days a week for this magazine. Um, And he did some really good work in it, actually. Well, yeah, and then in the the Army, he -hmm. actually made films. He was was making documentaries right alongside Frank Capra. Uh Uh, He had one series of training videos called Private Snafu, uh, that were animated, um, but they were the work of Chuck Jones, actually. Right. Yeah. It's just so crazy about all this talent that's like in the army producing these yeah. things at the time. Yeah. Uh, but he he went on to make live action documentaries, um, one called Your Job in Germany, another called Our Job in Japan. Um, MacArthur stopped the release of Our Job in Japan, uh, and apparently um, General Patton stormed out of a screening of one of the other ones, and I couldn't find the word, but it said he uttered one loud curse word. Oh, you couldn't find it? No. Do you? Did you? It was BS. Oh, okay. But I was he trying to think of BS. what it would be. Sure. Yeah. I was like, but one word. So yeah. it wasn't the F word unless it was just a very just long, drawn out. <laughs> right. like, I don't have time for you this. You know? Uh, all right. BS. That makes sense. Yeah. Which I don't understand. I don't know what the problem was. But they were both the the our job in Japan or your job in Germany. Yeah. Was about occupation, post post occupation um, life in Germany or Japan, and what? Yeah, you can watch your job in Germany on YouTube. Yeah, and and our job in Japan too. Yeah, so he he uh, recut those basically, kind of rewrote and recut those later on, and retitled them uh, "Hitler Lives" and "Designed for Death." No, he didn't. They were recut around him without his say. Oh no no no! He and his wife later got those films. Oh really? And recut them and won an Academy Award. Oh okay. Yeah, I had read that a producer went and and did some recutting against their wishes and made it way worse than than they originally intended. Oh well, that may have happened, and then maybe they then later on re recut it. Got the Oscar for their version. Right. I don't know. Okay. But we left out a lot actually because he um he was actually had previous to the army had already written children's books. Like, he f- went fully into this because of a ship trip that he took. Okay. In 1936. Let's, let's walk it back a little bit. They, uh, they went on a transatlantic voyage aboard the MS uh, Kungsholm, 
And apparently the ship's engine had this beat, this hypnotic throbbing sound that just really stuck with him. And it got into his head. And so he started composing rhyming couplets that match with this rhythm. Kind of like, uh, 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 uh. That's <laughs> it, my SS Kungsholm impression. All right. Well, it ended up being uh, what's called anapestic tetrameter, which is what he would make his career on this uh, poetic meter. You know what that made me think of, Chuck? Um, that, like, I've never heard those words together in my life. But no one ever taught me how to read a Dr. Seuss book. It's almost like we have some ingrained thing in our brain to read things in that kind of rhythm or rhyme. Right. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. Or is it just like my parents read that to me and that's where I picked it up from? But who taught them? I don't who know. Who ever taught anybody how to read something in rhymes? It's just like you just it's know. It's pretty intuitive, and yeah. And even when, you, when, you, when you're not reading it in the right rhythm, your brain realizes it and corrects you, and you go back and reread it the right way. Right. Like when you get to the next line, you're like, oh, wait, that's out of beat or whatever. Yeah. Like you figure it out naturally, and I wonder why we're geared toward that. Yeah, it's funny, too, because I obviously read a lot of kids' books every night now, and some of them are great, and some of them just like – They'll do a word that doesn't quite rhyme, and I'm always like, come on. Come on. Or they'll stuff too much in a line, and it's not, like, graceful in the read. Mm-hmm. I'm like, man, this is lame. Do better. Orange and door hinge. <laughs> hey, that's not bad. Well, that's Eminem. Oh, okay. <laughs> he very famously can rhyme something with orange, which door. I found out because I think I said nothing rhymes with orange. And everybody's like, Well, well everyone's always said that because that's true. Well, I meant it. Door hinge. That's funny. Uh, so he created a children's book uh, on that uh, anapestic tetrameter called And This is a Story No One Can Beat uh, that was later changed uh, and published in 1937 as And to Think That I Saw It on Mulberry Street because he had an old friend that he ran into from Dartmouth that turned out to be a children's book editor at Vanguard Press. So I read a, a, an account of the story, and the person saying telling the story said, had he been walking on the other side of the street that day, he may have never become a children's author. Yeah. Like, it was that fateful. Um, he, his friend from Dartmouth was a new children's book editor at Vanguard, you said? Yeah. And w- it was so new that he was looking for material. Mm-hmm. And... Dr. Seuss happened to be walking around with the manuscript on him mm. and just happened to be down there and they ran into each other and this book got published and that was the one where he first made his name as a children's book writer. You're right. And shout out to Stephen Barr, book agent. That's right. Yeah. Uh, so this this uh, antipestic tetrameter is what he basically stuck with the rest of his career. He would alter it here and there, use other meters here and there. But this is where he, you know, as Ed said, that was his bread and butter. And it's very waltz-like. You can count it off in three, four time. And it just was sort of perfect for kids' books. Right. And with that first kids' book, um, and to think I saw it on Mulberry Street, apparently it's about a kid named Marco who sees a horse and cart on his street. And as he's retelling it, it just becomes this bigger and bigger and more like bizarre and grand thing that he saw. Um, And this will come back Later on in the episode. Yeah. So he's writing these books. He's doing okay. Uh, he, his fourth book was called Horton Hatches the Egg. I think that's where we first meet Horton. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but he wasn't like lighting the world on fire. And then that's when he goes in the army. Right. And let me tell you the story about getting caught in the Battle of the Bulge again. <laughs> Here we go. 
So he makes it through World War II. He escapes with his life from the Battle of the Bulge. And when he comes out of World War II, he goes um, right back to writing books. And he, he wrote a few more in the 40s. Um, I believe he wrote Yertle the Turtle, which I know is an allegory for Hitler. And he was on oh, record yeah? saying, yeah, apparently the early drafts of it, he had drawn a Hitler mustache on Yertle the Turtle. It's about anti-authoritarian. It's about like, authoritarianism. Is that Hitler or Michael Jordan? <laughs> <laughs> Does he have a Hitler mustache? He did very famously in, in the, this is one Haynes TV commercial. And everyone was like, uh, <laughs> has someone not told him? <laughs> I don't, I didn't see that. Oh yeah. I'll have to show you pictures. I had my head funny. in the sand like I was Charles Lindbergh or something. Oh, that's a nice circular ref. That was just for you and me. Um, so he was writing some more, and he was, I mean, he was selling like thousands of copies every every time he released a book. He was a known children's author. He'd already established his, his style as something that was pretty recognizable around the United States. But it wasn't until the mid-50s that things really changed for him. Yeah. Oh, wow, that is a Hitler mustache. <laughs> There's no mistake in that. It's a, it's a decision. Um, so... It, I think in 1955, there was a book written called Why Can't Johnny Read, right? Okay. And a guy named Rudolph Flesh, and I realize what we've jumped over. We'll get back to it. Sure. I'm not ready for it yet. All right. <laughs> um, a guy named Rudolph Flesh. It, it, this Rudolph Flesh? Yeah. F-L-E. Was he a porn S-C-H. actor? <laughs> That'd be a good one, though. Yeah, Rudy Flesh. Um, yeah, you'd have to call yourself Rudy, too, wouldn't you? <laughs> yeah. Anyway, Rudolph Flesch, um, he wrote Why Can't Johnny Read? And it was basically like an indictment of the American public school system, the education system, yeah. and how we taught kids to read. And it was equally an indictment of like Dick and Jane and the way that kids used to read or be taught to read yeah. was just basically here are words on a page, memorize them. Yeah. This is a red ball. This is the word red. Don't be an idiot. Red ball. Say yeah, it. It's kind of the worst way to teach kids stuff. It is. And the guy in the article said, um, he wrote an article in Life later on too. He said, you know who'd be a great children's book author to teach kids how to read is Dr. Seuss. He's he hates already, kids. He's already <laughs> writing books for kids. Yeah. Why? But if he just directed that toward actually teaching them how to read, that'd be, that's, kids would definitely want that. And it turns out that... Um, an editor, I think, at Houghton Mifflin or somebody, wherever wherever Dr. Seuss was writing at the time. Dunder Mifflin. Dunder Mifflin. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, wait, you got me. <laughs> um, he said, that's actually a pretty good idea. And that's where we got the cat in the hat. That's right. It was, it was originally meant as a reading primer. Uh, I think there were... 225. 225 words. And, and very famously, his editor bet him after that that he could not write a book with only 50 words. Mm-hmm. And he went... Take this book, Green Eggs and Ham. And shove it. And shove it. <laughs> and give me my $50. Right. <laughs> and that is supposedly true. His editor bet him that he could not do so. And that's where Green Eggs and Ham came from. Yeah. And it's 50 words exactly. That's right. Um, so he, at this point, he went from, Ed says, he went from being a well-known children's author to probably the best-known children's author in the world. Yeah. He'd shown, not only could he write fun, whimsical um, s- stories with the disguised moral lesson in the middle of it too, um, with great illustrations and hand-drawn fonts and all that. Mm-hmm. He could actually teach the world's children how to read English at least. Yeah, and then from that success, he he wrote uh, that same year 
uh, How the Grinch Stole Christmas. That's a big year, man. Very big year. So, so Cat in the Hat and the Grinch are the same year, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, which is just amazing. And then in 1966, of course, we get the very famous uh, TV cartoon adaptation, which uh, people still love and enjoy today, including me. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Uh, and he ended up being so successful that they gave him his own imprint at Random House um, with his wife, uh, Helen Palmer Geisel, who was um, kind of by all accounts the, the woman behind the man. She, oh, yeah. She was an author herself. Uh, she wrote quite a, f- a few books, one called Do You Know Do You Know What I'm Going to Do Next Saturday? To You. <laughs> one called I Know What You Did Last Summer. <laughs> right. <laughs> um <laughs> Man, it's funny. Adding those two words just makes it threatening. It's a horror novel. Uh, one called Why I Built the Boogle House and one called I Was Kissed by a Seal at the Zoo. That sounds great. Uh, so I didn't want to just kind of wash over her because she she was an author and uh, very sadly she ended up committing suicide very late in life. Yeah, within um, a couple of years of an affair that he had. Yeah. Um, and he'd apparently had multiple affairs and her um, – her suicide note supposedly referenced this this feeling that she'd kind of been overshadowed by him in his career. Yeah. And like you said, she was very much the woman behind the man. And I think expected to support him yeah. and all that thing. And you she know? did. She put her own career away so that she could handle his correspondence and business affairs. She was in charge of correspondence to like sick kids that wrote him or entire classes. And yeah. um, she was she was. He all he he was the artistic genius who just needed to be left alone so he could make these books every year, and she handled everything else. Right, and to ask somebody to put their career away so that you can have yours—it's a big thing to ask somebody. Yeah, I mean, she was sixty-nine when she, uh, and I, I believe I said committed suicide earlier. I apologize. I know we don't use that term anymore. Yeah. So we say now that she died by suicide. Right. Right. Yeah, because uh, committed makes it sound like, oh my god, she committed a sin. Yeah, and we people have wrote, written in about that, and I was, I was, we were both glad to be made aware of that. Mm-hmm. So she was sixty nine years old, and apparently also suffered from uh, Guillaume Barre Bar Guillaume Barre syndrome. Yeah, we got corrected on that some other time. It's how I remember of how to pronounce it. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, who who knows why someone eventually takes that path in life? Could be a lot of factors. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, October 23rd, 1967, she overdosed on medication. After they've been married for 40 years, too. Yeah, man. Um, and so uh, shortly after that, he married uh, Audrey Diamond. Yes. Uh, Geisel, who's his uh, widow, who uh, is, I believe, still alive and, and basically running his estate still. Yeah, her name was Audrey Stone Diamond, but it was D-I-M-O-N-D, no A. Oh, yeah. Which is interesting. I wonder it's, if it's It's Dimond. very efficient. But yes, she became Soyce, and he went, just go ahead and get used to it. It's Seuss. <laughs> <laughs> She's like, really? I've always said Soyce. He's like, I love you. Uh, and she had two daughters, uh, and he said, I bet you they'd love boarding school. Yeah. And she went, okay. And she later on even said, uh, this is a direct quote. She said, they wouldn't have been happy with Ted, and Ted wouldn't have been happy with them. Yeah, he really did not want kids or kids to be around. He just liked doing the books that he liked to do. It's pretty interesting. So he, um, that 1957 year, that was a big breakout year for him. And um, that was kind of the year that he became the Dr. Seuss that we we see. 
But he kept writing for many, many years. I mean, up until his death in 1991, he apparently cranked out like a book a year. Yeah. Um, some of the some of them over time kind of took on much more progressive tones until he became the Dr. Seuss that we see today. So prior to that, though, um, in recent years, some people have kind of said, hey, you know, Dr. Seuss had some really racist, bigoted stuff in his early work. And it's become kind of this national conversation to kind of mm-hmm. figure out how to do this because everyone loves Dr. Seuss, loves Dr. Seuss. Mm-hmm. There's nobody who doesn't like Dr. Seuss. (laughs) But if you, or his work, I should say. Sure. But if you you start digging into especially some of his early work, it becomes problematic. Um, So you want to take a break? uh, Okay, all right. All right, let's take a break, and we will take part in that national conversation right after this. Stuff you should know. All right, Chuck. So it's national conversation time. So Dr. Seuss, uh, especially in his earliest work as a jack-o'-lantern and judge writer, the humor magazine writer, mm-hmm. a lot of his stuff was extremely racist. Yes. Uh, as Ed puts it, not just racist for the time, but but monstrously racist stuff. Yeah, like uh, full-on blackface caricatures. Um, it depicted uh, African-American characters as uh, lazy as savages, uh, have too many kids. He made jokes about slavery. There's one we can't even read on this show. Yeah. Uh, but it's awful. Yeah, right. Um, he also, especially as uh, after Pearl Harbor, directed a, a lot of his creative energy toward uh, making ugly caricatures of Japan and depicting mm-hmm. Japanese and Japanese Americans in a really unflattering light, too. Yeah, and apparently supported internment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this isn't, you know, you don't want to drag somebody through the mud. Right. But if we're going to give a picture of the man, this is who he was earlier in his life. Right. So Ed makes a really good point. I think Ed's a great American for the way that he kind of <laughs> kind of handled this, too. Um, he's saying that uh, that if you look at his early stuff— he was a younger man at the time. Mm-hmm. And I think it was, we should also say Ed qualifies as like none of this excuses anything. Sure. But, but you know, look at the whole, the whole picture of the person. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at his earlier stuff or his, his worst, most racist stuff is when he was youngest. Yeah. And his most progressive stuff that everybody knows and loves is Dr. Seuss is when uh, the world was kind of changing too. Yeah, it's not like in 1989 he was like, I'm going to deliver, I'm going to serve up a good old racist cartoon. Right, exactly. It's yeah. not like he invented sea monkeys or something like that, right? <laughs> um, so he kind of progressed with the world. And not only did he progress with the world and kind of change his views to to take on much more progressive stuff, um, themes like um, like uh, uh, bigotry mm-hmm. with the Sneetches yeah. is about discriminating against people and just how ridiculous that is, how yeah. people are actually people. Um, a lot of people point to Horton Hears a Who as a bit of a mea culpa for uh, his treatment of the Japanese yeah. prior to World War II and during World War II. Um, the Lorax is obviously pro-environmentalism. 
Yeah. Um, he fully changed one of his books altogether, an earlier version of... Uh, and, I, and to think I saw it on Mulberry Street? Yeah, it had the word Chinaman in there. It, it was worse than Chinaman. And he... He changed that to Chinese person, right? Like in the publication of the book for future printings, right? Um, so he he definitely um, evolved his his works evolved. He never came out and publicly said, "Hey, I'm really sorry about all the racist stuff that I did earlier." Yeah. Um, th- uh, by the time he died in 1990, I think that that really wasn't the way that the the world was turning at the time. Mm-hmm. But he he does seem to have evolved and changed with the times and and did go back and revise some stuff that had crept into his his uh, work. Yeah, and this has um, come to light uh, more prominently in the past few years because uh, there have been like some uh, book festivals and children's literature festivals that have either been boycotted or where they've tr- sort of tried to uh, make him a little less prominent. Right. Uh, the Cat in the Hat, uh, I think, was used. Um, wasn't it like an, an official... Read Across America. Right. He was the mascot for it. Yeah, and did they, they officially remove the cat in the hat? I think they backed a little bit away from from the cat in the hat as a mascot, if not entirely. And I think that they've kind of like, Dr. Seuss's books are not like the focal point of the Read Across America campaign like they were. Right. Uh, and then last year, uh, Melania Trump made the news when she gifted a library some Dr. Seuss books, and the librarian uh, refused that gift and said they are steeped in racist propaganda, caricatures, and harmful stereotypes. I, I don't know that that all is necessarily true, is it? Yeah, you know, I, I think that might have been a little too harsh. Well, I mean, it, if it's if I'm wrong, I, I, I want about, to know. The only thing that I've seen that could be pointed to in his work— Like his books. Was the, was the reference and in, in drawing of the Chinese guy. Yeah. Um, in his first book, and to think I saw it on Mulberry Street, I didn't see anything else. I saw some reference that maybe the cat in the hat was supposed to be blackface, but I, I saw that one place right. and nowhere else. It seemed to be his earlier work, not his children's books. And I didn't see any racist propaganda that had that was hidden in the books. If anything, the books that you would give a library, right. and I, didn't know, I don't know what title she gave, would have been... The more progressive stuff. Yes, she didn't go there and say, here, look, here's the old jack-o'-lantern. Here's the really dirty stuff. College humor, racist cartoons. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, to, to say that his work was steeped in racist propaganda when talking about the children's books, is, I, I agree, is not accurate. Right. What I'm, what I'm trying to figure out is, is, is that librarian hip to something we don't know about? Right. Or, or not? Right. I, I'm very curious to know. Like, if we didn't dig quite deep enough— I'm a little surprised because you know us. Yeah. But um, I want to know if we're missing something there. Yeah, for sure. Um, I found an article where they were just asking a lot of professionals um, in children's literature what they thought about all this because mm-hmm. I'm a big dummy. You know, I don't know how to figure this stuff out on my own. Uh, and Anne Neely, she's a professor of children's lit at Vanderbilt, uh, said this uh, Just as every author or illustrator is, I think Theodore Geisel was a product of his time. And we should not judge him by today's standards, but. We must evaluate his books that we decide to share with children using today's standards. That is a really great point. Yeah, we cannot wallow in our own nostalgia when we make choices for the books we share with young children. There are simply too many outstanding books available. Well, especially also if the books that we're sh- raising our kids on, it's, it's new to them. Right. If, it's, if it is steeped in racist propaganda that we're not realizing we're sharing or perpetuating, then yeah, that shouldn't be the case. And Ed makes the great point that in the 1920s and 30s, 
it was the exceptional American who broke out of that mold right. and was very progressive. Uh, and I wish he would have been one of those, but he wasn't. Yeah, and I think that's one of the reasons why it's, there's such a cognitive dissonance when you find this stuff out is because that's what you think of Dr. Seuss based on his work. Yeah. That, like, he would be that kind of guy, but right. he was human. His work is larger than him. Right. Is, I think, what it is. And that's the case with just about everything, it seems like. Yeah. I mean, I don't want this to taint your reading of How the Grinch Stole Christmas this no. year. Although, um, another thing that he was called out on once was his— um, it, there was no female protagonist in any of his books either. Again, a product of the time. Yeah. He was a man writing about little male characters. But he went and created uh, Daisy-Headed Maisie after that. Too. Right. So, um, he, so, again, his books became more progressive further on in his career, and he handled things like um, segregation and discrimination, like with the Sneetches. Um, the Butter Battle book mm-hmm. was a clear, like, glaring allegory for the Cold War and the mutual assured yeah. destruction and arms race. A, kind of a haunting book that ends without any resolution with both sides, the Ukes and the Zooks, I think, um, with their bombs pointed at one another. And it doesn't, it's not like, and they lived happily ever after. It's like, what's going to happen? Yeah. And then uh, his last book that he wrote and published while he was alive was Oh, the Places You'll Go, right. which I had no idea was published in 1990. Did you? I didn't know anything about it. So uh, it, it was not, it was his last book that was published while he was alive. Mm-hmm. It's also his top-selling book. So some of these other books have been around for decades longer than Oh, the Places You'll Go. Yeah. But Oh, the Places You'll Go is his top-selling book because it's given to grads uh, every spring, there's a new batch of graduates yeah. who get Oh, the Places You'll Go as a gift, and like 10 million copies have been sold. Because it's about like uh, your your future and what awaits you? Is that yeah, deal? just like doing things and taking risks and like trying stuff, and you can do it, and it'll be hard, and you're going to run into to problems, but you know, you, you're, you're a good person, and you're going to make good choices. And I have a story about this. Oh, yeah? So... Last night, um, I was talking to Yumi, and I was like, just out of nowhere, I was like, did you know that Oh, The Place You'll Go was only published in 1990, but it's Dr. Seuss's greatest selling book? And she just looked at me kind of like a little flabbergasted, like, why would you say that? I was like, oh, we're doing a Dr. Seuss episode tomorrow. And she's like, that's really weird. I'll be right back. And she went into our bedroom and Mm -hmm. came back out with a copy of Oh, The Place You'll Go and said... This has been under your pillow. She said, I was going to give this to you tomorrow for the last episode of The End of the World. Oh, wow. But I just happened to bring it up the day before. Isn't That's that cool? crazy. Yeah, I thought that was really surprising. Man, how things work out. But I read it as recently as last night. I'm like, this is an amazing, even good? for Seuss, it's an amazing yeah. book. Like an article I read said that somebody some, somebody said, like, you can tell that he knew this was the last book that, that was going to be published while he was alive, that he wanted this to be his his swan song. Interesting. Yeah. I uh, I would not be surprised talking about his a more progressive views and sort of catching up with the time if uh, either Helen and or Audrey, as the women behind the man, weren't helping him along in that respect. Sure. And saying like, hey, get with it. Oh, oh, uh, you know? like for changing his views? Maybe. I thought that as well. I could totally see that. Yeah, because if you think about it, Helen Palmer came into his life um, – yeah, I, yeah, I, I could see her having that influence on him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He passed away uh, finally of cancer in 
is September 24th, 1991, 87. And I remember this because that was a rough week. Uh, I was in college, and he and Miles Davis died about five or six days apart. Oh, really? And I just remember being like, man, this is this is one of those tough ones Yeah, for dudes my age yep. who were beboppers and children's book readers. <laughs> At the same time. <laughs> uh, I've got one last thing for you about Dr. Seuss. Do you have anything else? i got one more thing, too. You oh, first. Okay, I'll go first. He was a voracious chain smoker. Oh, interesting. So much so that even back in like the 50s and 60s, he knew he needed to lay off sometimes. So when he needed to lay off of smoking, he would um, take up a, he would take up a <laughs> corncob pipe that he kept turnip seeds in. Oh. And anytime he wanted to smoke rather than light it, he would put a water dropper in there. And then when the turnip seeds started to sprout, he would grow, go back to cigarettes. What? Yes. I don't fully understand that. He would start a little corn, seed pod. Corncob pipe with some pipe. turnip seeds. And then rather than light it, he would just put a seed dropper in and yeah, p- yeah. puff on it. But nothing was going on. Sure. It was all just mental or oral fixation. Uh-huh. And then after about three days of doing this, the seeds would, would sprout, germinate, and he'd be like, okay, I can go back to cigarettes now. Huh. So he'd take about three days off of cigarettes, and he used the crop of turnip greens as his, his indicator. I thought you were going to say that that went on to feed, like, the children in poor neighborhoods or something. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Who hate turnips? Kids don't eat turnips. Turnips are great. Uh, I agree. I'm a, I'm a root vegetable man myself. So my last thing in 2007, the federal judge uh, received a hard-boiled egg in the mail from an inmate in prison <laughs> protesting his diet in prison. Mm-hmm. And the federal uh, the federal judge rendered a decision – and apparently it was worked up the ladder. I can't remember even what it was about, but he rendered a decision thusly. I do not like eggs in the file. <laughs> this is Judge James uh, Muirhead. I do not like them in any style. I will not take them fried or boiled. I will not take them poached or broiled. I will not take them soft or scrambled, despite an argument well rambled. No fan I am of the egg at hand. Destroy that egg today, 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 I say, without delay. Huh. And they... Threw him out of court and fired him. <laughs> right. <laughs> because he was drunk. Yeah. No, I don't know. Um, wow, I wonder what came out of that. I don't know. And it, and it gave very little information about what the case was even on. I know. Like the I guy's like, no, food. really, this is a serious complaint. Please, right. <laughs> you're focusing on the wrong thing. Someone help me. Oh, goodness. Uh, if you want to know more about Dr. Seuss, go research it. Make your own decisions about the man, the work, all that stuff. Okay. Agreed. Uh, and since I said that, it's time for listener mail. No, this is our last show of the year. So no listener mail. It's just our time of the year to thank everyone here and year. Is this the end of 10 years? Yes. Or it's sort well, of in the middle. April is the beginning and end of a year. Right. But the end of our calendar year. And we just thank everyone for hanging in for this long with us. Yeah. It's Amazing that we're still allowed to do this job. Yeah, hang in there. It'll pay off eventually. <laughs> and uh, we're going to keep at it. Forever. Forever. And on a personal note, a very happy birthday to my dear sweet wife, Yumi. Happy ha- birthday, Yumi. Happy birthday, Yumi. Uh, and thank you guys for being with us for yet another year. And we'll see you next year, everybody. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 